Hey, it's Jackie, and I'm sitting in my apartment, 15 floors up, overlooking downtown Austin. It's a beautiful day. I'm kind of flying high this morning from the residual of last night's wine and cheese. We had fabulous conversation. It was like our brains were sinking. Doesn't always happen, but when it does, it's soulfully good. And if you listen to the last few episodes on cultivating friendships, you know what I'm talking about. Today, in this episode, we're going to focus on female relationships. It's complicated, isn't it? And even though I'm speaking about women to the women, I want you to know, men, this applies to you too. And in our next episode, I'm actually going to examine the question, can men and women be friends? So stick around for that one. But again, in this episode, I'm going to share a section from my book, I'm, an, I'm Enough, Learning How to Live Confidently in Our Own Skin. And uh, the chapter I'm going to be pulling from is called The She for She Community. And in it, I address messages that provoke us women to compete and compare with each other. It talks about how we tend to live in an ethic of scarcity rather than the Jesus ethic of multiplication. And we're going to dive into some scriptures. We're going to look at some women's stories And I suspect through their stories, we're going to gain some insight into ours, into how to cultivate female friendships. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Um, I want to share a story with you that I heard a woman, a woman share one time, I don't know, several years back. I'd give her credit, but the truth is she got the story from someone else who got the story from someone else. So I don't even know where it originated. It's about elephants. I know. Trust me, it ties. Hang in there. Here's how it goes. In the wild, when a mama elephant is giving birth, all the other female elephants in the herd back up around her in formation. They close ranks so that the delivering mama cannot be seen in the middle. They stomp and they kick up their dirt and soil to throw off the attacker's scent. They surround the mama and the incoming baby in protection, sending a clear signal to predators that if they want to attack their friend while she's vulnerable, they're going to have to get through 40 tons of female aggression first. When the baby elephant is delivered, the sister elephants do two things. They kick sand or dirt over the newborn to protect its fragile skin from the sun. And then they all start trumpeting a female celebration of new life, of sisterhood, of something beautiful, being born in a harsh, wild world, despite enemies, attackers, predators, and against all odds. Scientists tell us that they normally take this formation in only two cases, under attack by predators like lions or during the birth of a new elephant. 
And this author that I'm referring to, I first hear share this story. This is what she says. Her conclusion to this is, this is what we do, girls. When we, when our sisters are vulnerable, when they are giving birth to new life, new ideas, new ministries, new spaces, when they are under attack, when they need their people to surround them so that they can create, deliver, heal, recover, we get in formation. We close ranks and we have each other's backs. You want to mess with our sisters? Come through us first. Good luck. And when delivery comes, when new life makes its entrance, when healing finally begins, when the night has passed and our sister is ready to rise back up, we sound our trumpets because we saw it through together. We celebrate, we cheer, we raise our glasses and give thanks. Man, when I first heard that story, I had this visceral response arise in me and I I, I don't know, something in me kind of cried out like, yes, 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 this is absolutely right and true. I knew that God made me for that kind of community. And I know that it takes that kind of community around me in order to finish this race and win the prize. You know, that's something that the Apostle Paul talked about, right? He says it this way. You've all been to the stadium and you've seen the athletes race. Everyone runs, one wins. Run to win, he said. All good athletes try hard. They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. You're after one that's gold is eternal. I don't know about you, Paul says, but I'm running as hard for the finish line as I can. I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. I'm staying alert in top condition, and I'm not going to get caught napping, telling everyone else about it, and then missing out on myself. You got to love Paul. He's full of passion. You know, if you've ever trained for a race, for a marathon, you know you have to build up your mileage over several months. And when I decided to tackle a race, I learned early on that the way I'd make it is with a running partner. Having someone to talk to, to keep you distracted and motivate you during those long runs was the key to my success. And the point is we each have our own race to run. But what Paul's words are telling us is that most of our races will not be some leisurely jog in Central Park but rather New York City's grueling 26.2-mile marathon. Have you ever run, uh, had a run of hardship where one thing keeps happening after another? We have seasons like that. I have shared with you some of those seasons in my life. This rash of hardship, right, dealt with chronic back pain, a husband with a brain tumor, out-of-control son, dad that was going nuts, extended family blowing up, depression, my mom's divorce, earning a doctorate, working full-time, and guess what? Overall burnout. (laughs) You can see why. I was faced with raising all of these kids, managing a home, trying to stay married. And I, I shared with you at a time during this where I sat at a lake house and I had this vision of a raging river with the water up to my nostrils. I was so close, I thought I was gonna drown. And I held fast to Isaiah's words where he says, when you go through the deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, Jackie, you will not drown. And then during that time, there was a straw that broke the camel's back, and I've shared this with you. After 14 years of serving as executive pastor, my husband was unexpectedly fired. And in a few days, we faced losing half of our income, 98% of our community. My daughter's social life was blown up. You know, her whole life existed in the youth group. My older son's job was IT at our church. And my position 
was on staff at the same church teaching pastor to women. We wondered if we were going to keep our home, let alone keep our two sons in college. And two days after Steve was fired, he flew to New York City for a previously scheduled meeting. And that's when I received a phone call from my son, Hampton. His voice was shaking, and he told me he was about to be expelled from college. And I lost it. I just couldn't hold up underneath it all anymore. And I decided to do what everybody does in a crisis, can cauliflower. Yeah, you heard me right, can cauliflower. Something from my past just kicked in and I thought, I think I'll go can me some spicy cauliflower. And so I drove to Walmart to to purchase all these canning supplies. And that's where I ended up, on the floor, crying hysterically, unaware of where I was or what was happening. That's my way of saying I had a nervous breakdown. And my daughter Madison was there, and she stood there wondering what to do. Finally, she called my older son, Hunter, who was working at the church, and he came and got us. He drove us home, and I vaguely remember them sitting there in our living room looking at me. They'd never seen their mother lose it, and they're trying to figure out, what do we do? And Hunter decided to call a few elephants, and they came in a herd. Amy left work, rushed home to hold my hand. Krista brought Xanax. Boy, that was really important. (laughs) Another friend brought me food. They backed up in formation, and they stayed there. Not only that day, but for the next months and years that it took to recover from all of the loss. Your story is different than mine, but you've been on the floor of Walmart, metaphorically speaking. And you know, as well as I do, how important elephants are at that time in your life. They're backing up into formation. It makes all the difference in how and when we get off the floor. You know, if we look back to the story in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, we find that you and I were made to rule, subdue our enemies, and fill the earth in concert with our sisters and brothers And that text, that story is trying to tell us we need each other. But I confess, alongside my visceral yes in hearing that story about female formation, I also feel a deep pang. I long to travel in a herd of elephants, but often I've found myself among buffaloes. You may not know, but buffaloes stand six feet tall weigh approximately 3,000 pounds, and can run up to 40 miles per hour for a quarter of a mile, and then 35 miles per hour for the next 10 miles, and they can clear a six-foot fence from a stationary position. A flaw that contributed to their being on the endangered list was that when one buffalo was shot, instead of running, the others would turn toward it and gore it. Therefore, one shot ensured not one buffalo, but many were gunned down. Often, we find our sisters to be our worst adversaries, don't we? Instead of cheering us on, they are tripping us up. And I've experienced that, and I suspect you have too. I remember one afternoon while lingering by a pool with a friend, she said to me, "Um, with all your work and school and travel, like, Somebody must be paying the price. And her inference was that either my kids or my marriage was suffering because of my work life. And let's be honest, 
that's not a helpful statement because almost all of us women struggle, right, with the tension here, the sense of insecurity and guilt and self-doubt about how we're doing at home and how we're doing in work. And there's this constant tug and pang and understanding that we're not doing it all perfectly, uh, let alone doing it in a smoking hot body, right? Just saying. The last thing I needed to hear from my quote-unquote friend was, who's paying the price for your work life? You know what I wanted to say to her? You know who? Me. That's who. Everybody else's needs are being met. Mine are going without. I mean, I was lucky if I could get to the hairdresser twice a year or a doctor once a year. I mean, don't even get me started. The one who was paying the price was me. Now, I know what you're thinking. Come on, Jackie. Your friend was just looking out for you. No. No, she wasn't. She was feeling threatened. Because my life, how I was living my life, looked different than hers. And she was assessing if Jackie's life and the way she's doing this for Jesus is the way it's supposed to look, then who am I? You see, it was a competition, a comparison cloaked in Christianese. You know, bless your soul, I'm caring for you. That's buffalo behavior. And I know you can probably share some of your own stories about your run-ins. The truth is, it's part of our human experience. I mean, we've experienced it, and we see it in Scripture even. I mean, way, way back when, in Genesis chapter 29 through 30, we read about Rachel and Leah, two sisters who are married to the same man, Jacob. Jacob had hoped to marry Rachel, but was tricked by Rachel's father into marrying Leah first. Later, Jacob was allowed to marry Rachel. Now, it's a no-brainer that two sisters married to the same guy is a recipe for disaster. Polygamy is not God's best, but it was acceptable practice during this time in history. And like us, Rachel and Leah lived in a society where there was these systemic sins towards women. Now, systemic sin is a social climate where sinful attitudes become normal behaviors, And they lived in a patriarchal society where women had no agency or legal rights, or very little. In other words, women were pretty much property of their father and then their husband. And a woman's worth, her status and purpose, were based on her being married, able to produce male heirs, and upholding her husband's honor through morality, through purity. Society taught Leah and Rachel that their worth was rooted in mothering boys and remaining pure. Their narratives are more extreme than ours, but like us, they bought into their society's you're not enough woman ideology. And like us, they oriented their whole lives according to what they were taught. Their beliefs determined their actions. See, when a a culture gives weight or status to a particular role or attribute, then that role or attribute becomes prized. Gaining them produces real rewards. We know this. In Genesis 30, we hear a distraught Rachel plead with Jacob, give me children or I will die, she said. She's so desperate that she forces her concubine, Beliah, to sleep with Jacob. And when Beliah gives birth, Rachel pronounces, I have struggled hard with my sister and I'm winning. Rachel is operating out of what's called an ethic of scarcity. An ethic of scarcity is a sum-zero game. It's the idea that if a person moves forward, then another person must move to the back of the line. Having sons moves Rachel forward. 
forcing Leah to the back of the line. I mean, Rachel is so desperate for this status and this worth that she is willing to engage in sexual exploitation to achieve it. Think about that. In Genesis 30, 14 through 16, we read, One day Reuben, Leah's son, found some mandrakes in the field. Now you need to know that mandrakes were thought to help somebody conceive. And Rachel wanted those mandrakes so that she could bargain. So she bargained with Leah. She said, I will let Jacob sleep with you tonight if you give me some of those mandrakes. Just imagine that. So that evening, as Jacob was coming home from the fields, Leah went out to meet him and she said to him, you must come and sleep with me tonight. She said, I have paid for you with some mandrakes that my son found. Again, we see sexual exploitation happening, except this time it's violence against a man. Now take a moment to just imagine their family meals. I mean, Jacob must have walked on eggshells. The sisters are in torment and at each other's throats. The concubines have no choice, no voice. They're sex slaves. The first time they bear children and hear their child say mother, it would not be to them. It would be to another woman. What about the kids sitting around the table? Scripture attests to how it turned out. I mean, Judah and his 10 brothers were human traffickers. They sold Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, into slavery. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, slept with Leah, his father's concubine, Simeon, and Levi carried out an honor killing after the rape of their sister Tamar. Sin is individual, but it is also hyper-relational. It ripples out. And when we let others define our worth in such singular way, ways, such as like the ideal woman, whatever that is, and our, our church has, a, has an ideal woman, right? She stays home, she has children, she volunteers at the church, and she looks damn good doing it, right? She loves well, she nurtures. These are, the, these are some of the concepts that we have been taught as Christians, that what it means to be the ideal woman, and they become the prize. That's what gives status. Status, and I'm quoting Andy uh, Crouch here, Status, at its root, is about our drive to be ranked above another, to be counted more worthy than another. It is the subtle calculations we often make when we enter a room, sizing up who's most popular, who's most pretty, who's most powerful. Status is about counting, numbering, ranking, and ultimately about excluding. So we must ask ourselves if we are operating out of an ethic of scarcity, What prize drives us to trip someone else up? When our worth is tied to a false narrative, we behave in this way. It it looks a whole lot like buffaloes rather than elephants. I remember a young professional lawyer shared with me the pain she was experiencing when she learned that it was another woman in her law firm who deliberately sabotaged her from making partner. The woman who tripped her up was the only female partner at the time. She had broken the glass ceiling and had status because she was viewed as an exception to the rule. She operated in an ethic of scarcity. If she allowed another woman to be promoted to partner, then she would no longer be the exception. She'd moved to the back of the line. So she tripped her up so she wouldn't lose her status. That's not how Jesus operates. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we think about cultivating female friendships, who are the buffaloes in our midst? 
We even have to ask, am I? Are we competing and comparing and tripping others up? Are we buying and living into an ethic of scarcity? These are really good questions we need to be asking ourselves when we think about how we can form female relationships, rebuild social circles. There's another way women trip each other up. I call it policing. We apply social, economic, religious, relational pressure to make other women conform to this ideal promoted in our culture or our faith communities. In other words, women keep other women in their rightful place. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, I have too. And we see it in scripture. We see women policing women in Luke 10, 38 through 42, where Martha suggests Mary should be in the kitchen rather than when Jesus. See, in ancient Eastern culture, women weren't allowed in public spaces without being accompanied by a man. And one of the reasons women were forbidden to study under a rabbi was because he taught in public space. And if a woman sat at his feet, she'd be, be seen as like being promiscuous. She would dishonor her family. So most often, the home was the private space unless men gathered there. And where they gathered became male space. And Mary sat at the rabbi's feet in male space. The male disciples must have been unnerved by her posture and presence. And if the community peeked in the window, well, then the family would have been shamed. And so Martha's upset, not only because she's overworked, but also because Mary was violating a cultural boundary. And so what does Martha do? She polices. She tries to keep Mary in her rightful lane. But Jesus changes the narrative. Instead of following suit with the cultural norms, he invites Mary into a better story. And this isn't the last time we see him challenging this not enough narrative for women, this redefining who we are as women, which gives us the confidence to be able to enter into relationships with other women as elephants rather than buffaloes. I've been policed. I suspect you have too. I remember when an older woman sat across from me and she wanted to share some concerns that she had about my teaching. She told me that she represented the older women in our church, the the women from the 1950s, quote unquote. And as she comments, her comments progressed. She like questioned my dress. She, She questioned my hairstyle, my tendency to roam the stage while I talked. She even said to me, that's the way men teach. In no uncertain terms, she let me know that I was viewed as aggressive She told me that my level of training and my confidence was creating tension for other women. She and her friends had stayed home and made sure that there was breakfast and dinner on the table. And I found that very interesting. She assumed my jobs, responsibilities, precluded me from caring for my family in the same fashion. I should have, but I didn't tell her, hey, I cooked my kids breakfast too. And I packed their school lunches. And I'm home cooking dinner every night from scratch, by the way. The point is, this woman was policing me because I was outside of my prescribed lane. My story looks different than yours, but those of us who don't conform to a particular ideal in our workspace, in our home, in our, in our faith communities, we find ourselves being policed by other women. And I mean, we have to be honest. There's brokenness in this world, right? We all have this propensity to sin, to be unkind to one another. We, we all struggle with insecurities and unworthiness. 
We have to take responsibility when we trip our sisters up, but we also need to be aware that we are up against this huge beast that we aren't that responsible for and aren't always aware of. This systemic sin that pervades our Christian circles where women are told their worth is tied to conforming to this ideal biblical woman. That's the prize. And I'm here to say I think it creates an ethic of scarcity rather than abundance. And so it's no wonder to me that sometimes women can be our worst adversaries. But Jesus, Jesus shows us a different way to live and relate. Jesus did not operate out of an ethic of scarcity. Instead, he operated out of an ethic of multiplication or abundance. Throughout the Gospels, we watch Jesus use his power, his position, his status to ennoble others. I mean, all we have to do is turn to Philippians 2, 1 through 11, right? Which informs us that Jesus didn't move to the back of the line when he empowered others to move forward. Nowhere in scripture do we find Jesus afraid that if he lifted up, promoted, helped, enhanced, or cheered another on, that he'd become less. In fact, in John 14, 12, we learn that Jesus passed his power and authority on to his followers, and he told them, that they would do greater works than him. This is the ethic of multiplication, of abundance. Jesus shows us our new way of living and moving in this world. Jesus is a different kind of king, using a different kind of power to create a different kind of people. What kind of people will we be? And this is the point that Jesus made when he informed Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And that's the point he made when he was speaking to the two brothers who were fighting about the two seats in Matthew 20. Matthew 20 is a story about James and John. And James and John's mom came to Jesus and started working him to put her two sons in the places of honor and power. She requested upon Jesus' enthronement that her two sons get the most prestigious seats to the left and right of Jesus. And just like me, she had this upside-down understanding of what God's kingdom is like. For her, the kingdom of God on earth was merely a switcheroo, you know? Those who had power and prestige would go to the back of the line, and those in the back of the line would move to the front. She missed that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus didn't come to reorganize or shuffle things around. He came to make all things new. And I have to wonder, how many times have we tried to reshuffle and reorganize our lives? rather than live as new creations. By their culture's standards, this woman and her sons were back-of-the-line people. They're nobodies from nowhere, yet they are part of Jesus' inner circle. Think about that. The world may have viewed him that way, but Jesus chose him to be their, his inner circle. They walked with God in the flesh. And upon Jesus' departure, they're going to carry forth his redemptive mission for the world. They're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring forth a taste of Jesus' kingdom realities in their age and the age to come. These are some privileged dudes. But instead of seeing their incredible privilege, their high power, their unlimited position, they focus on two earthly seats. And I, too, often buy into that same small story. I, too, forget that I hold a prestigious, powerful position in this world. Andy Crouch defines power 
as this. He says, power is rooted in creation, the calling of something out of nothing, and the fruitful multiplying abundance of our astonishing world. It is intimately tied to image bearing, the unique role that human beings play in representing the cosmos creator in the midst of creation. Power is the ability to make something of this world. See, as God's image bearers, you and I have status, we have position, and yes, we have power. This is the real story, and it's time we start to live in it. Will it be easy? No, of course not. Remember, we are constantly taking in messages all day long, these cues and clues from our culture and communities, and our brains are assigning meaning to them, right? And how much have we heard about how not enough are we? Not good enough, not status high enough, not position, right? And we have a, an individual propensity to sin, and we live in a culture with systemic sin. And the evil's intent is to disrupt God's story by getting you to change it. As one author said, A woman fully empowered and equipped is very dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. They will be fiercely attacked. Renewing our minds and embracing God's story will take perseverance. Perseverance is practicing over and over without knowing for sure the outcome. I mean, we live in an age of one-hour online deliveries, immediate connection through phones. We are trained to get things now. But God is in the business of doing things over the long haul. The beauty and goodness he's creating in us takes time. And we see that was true of the disciples too. Jesus had this conversation with James and John about the two seats, and the rest of the disciples are miffed, probably because they didn't ask first. And once again, Jesus reminds them his kingdom is not of this world. He says to them, you know how the kings of the nations show their power to their people. Important leaders use their power over people. It must not be that way with you. But whoever wants to be great among you, let him care for you. Whoever wants to be first among you, let him be servant. For the Son of Man did not come to be cared for. He came to care for others. He came to give his life for so many, so that he could be bought. I'm sorry. He came to give his life so that many could be bought by his blood and made free from the punishment of sin. See, it took time for the disciples to unlearn what they learned and reconstruct a new reality. It's only a short while later after Jesus had said that to the disciples and after his death and resurrection that we see Jesus having another conversation about living in this new way where comparison and competing over power and position and status, ethic of scarcity is done. I'm sure you've heard of the story of Peter where he rejected Jesus three times and he feels pretty crappy about it. So he goes back to fishing in Galilee. Shame makes us hide. Shame makes us believe no one is coming back for us. When we hide in shame, we need someone to come get us. We need God. We need others. And Jesus came for Peter to reinstate him, to invite him into a better story than Peter was believing. And Peter and Jesus joust back and forth. Do you love me? You know I do. And finally, Jesus tells Peter how his life would turn out. And he said, and Peter turned around and saw behind him the disciples Jesus loved, the disciple Jesus loved the one who had leaned over Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? And Peter asked Jesus, well, what about him, Lord? What about him? How's his life going to turn out? Peter's so like us, right? He's still comparing and competing, looking for who's in the front of the line, looking for who's in the back of the line. He's still talking about two seats, still operating out of an ethic of scarcity. 
And I take this to mean that the renewing of our minds, like understanding who we are so that we can confidently embrace that and, and offer it in our relationships takes time. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? As for you, follow me. What's Jesus saying to Peter? He's saying this isn't about comparing and competing about who's in front, who's in the back. This is about so much more, Peter. I've created you to glorify me, and you will do that, and you're one of a kind, never to be seen again, image-bearing self. Peter, this is your race. I think this is what Jesus is telling us too. One of my favorite preachers says it like this. When you understand what Jesus means when he says you must follow him, you finally realize this is not a cattle call. He is not calling you to the same life everyone else will live. He's not even calling you to the same path every follower of Christ will walk. Your life is unique before God, and your path is yours and yours alone. Where God will choose to lead you and how God chooses to use your life cannot be predicted by how God has worked in the lives of others before you. It wasn't easy for the disciples to shift this, to this Jesus paradigm, and it won't be for us either. But God didn't leave us alone or powerless in this pursuit. He placed within us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit transforms the mind. This is what God promised in the Old Testament, right? Then is, Here's what it says. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And here it is. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And it's what we saw come about in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they start speaking in tongues in different languages and people accuse them of being drunk. And Peter, the one who previously ran away, he stood up and in the power of the Holy Spirit declared, these people are not drunk as some of you are assuming. No, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's far too early for that. By the way, there's some very funny statements in Scripture. It's like he's saying, well, if it were 3 p.m., you might be able to say that, but it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Peter went on to teach Scripture, which he had not been trained to do, and 3,000 people came to faith that day. There's power in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lives in us, and he can transform our minds from, yeah, i got to compete and compare with her so that I can be in the front of the line. No, 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 no. He can turn us from women who behave like buffaloes into four thousand tons of female elephants who back up for other women in the scriptures we witness what happens when women operate confidently in their own skin luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 56 we recently heard that story because it's a story that we hear during christmas it's the story of mary and elizabeth elizabeth is an older woman and in her culture older women were honored and regarded as sages She was from a prominent religious family, married to a man who also had an excellent family pedigree. They lived in the suburbs of Jerusalem, the hippest spiritual town in Israel. Elizabeth was a woman of high socio-religious status, but she was without a child, which caused great shame on her and her family. And in the story, an angel appears to Elizabeth's husband, Zachariah, and informed him that Elizabeth is going to have a child. And the angel says her child will, quote-unquote, will be great in God's sight. Mary, in contrast to Elizabeth, is young. 
Her family's no big deal. In fact, Luke stressed Joseph's pedigree, not Mary's. Mary lived in Nazareth, which was like some small military outpost. She's basically a nobody from nowhere. And an angel came to Mary and said she's going to have a child who would be great in everyone's sight. Notice the difference between the two statements about the boys. One would be great in God's sight. The other would be great in everyone's sight. And unlike Elizabeth, Mary actually didn't long for a child. I mean, she and Joseph were not totally wed yet, so her illegitimate baby could get her stoned to death. In spite of danger, Mary says yes to God, hurries off to see her older cousin, Elizabeth. And I want you to picture the scene. Because Elizabeth is a woman who spent her whole life aching for a child. She opens the door to receive her younger cousin, who is young, unwed, and pregnant. If Elizabeth was a woman who operated out of an ethic of scarcity, meaning Mary's presence and situation threatened her identity and worth, she could have easily responded in ways that shamed Mary. You know, the subtle ways we women do it, you know, shame for her immorality, police her to stay in her place, right? She could have gestured just, you know, a sign of disgust or disappointment or disapproval, even just rolling of the eyes. But she didn't. Even as the older woman with high status and position, she moved Mary to the front. She spoke words of life to Mary. God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? Elizabeth acknowledged that Mary's position, privilege, and status was greater than her own. She even said, your son is going to be greater than mine. Have you ever heard a mother say that to another mother? Oh, yeah, your son's going to be so much better than mine. No. How was Elizabeth able to so freely ennoble Mary, even to the point of lifting Mary's child above her own? I mean, we, we got to know this. And I think the answer is found in Luke 1, 6, where it says Elizabeth was righteous in God's eyes. Now, righteous can describe morality, and in light of the context of this passage, I would say that's true, but I think it's more than that because the biblical word righteousness is a relational word. Um, when, it's, when a woman is like right with God, not only in professing her faith, but getting from God what only God can give, then she's able to live rightly out of that with herself, others, and the created world. And this is why, instead of slighting or policing Mary, cheer, Elizabeth cheers, cheers Mary on. Look who God made you to be, she said. Look at what he's doing through you. Can't you hear Elizabeth in this passage? Run, Mary, run. I think what I love most about the story of Elizabeth is how she modeled to live out this ethic of multiplication. Elizabeth's bodily presence, her verbal encouragement, challenged Mary to rise up, and Mary did just that. She rose up like an easier warrior. This young gal from nowhere with no Bible training was the first to interpret Scripture in Luke's gospel. And what do I mean by interpret? Well, Mary took what she knew from the Old Testament, and she said, here's how that passage is playing out right now in history. Mary is the first to proclaim the gospel, the good news that that God's king is coming. King Jesus was bringing in God's kingdom on earth. 
Caesar Augustus, you're out. King Jesus, in. Unfortunately, we've been trained to see Mary's Magnificat as some lovely ballad or quiet song, you know? It's anything but. I mean, Mary belted out a revolutionary song that could have gotten her killed. The Magnificat is a subversive fighter song. If Herod heard it, he'd kill her. In the 1980s, the government of Guatemala banned the public reciting of the Magnificat because it was deemed politically subversive. Mary rose up. She declared God was at work. Despite what it would cost her, she trusted God with her unusual and difficult journey towards the fulfillment of God's plans for humanity. Elizabeth. Elizabeth helped Mary see what Mary couldn't see in herself. She inspired Mary to embrace who she was and the rightness of what she was doing. Elizabeth dreamed hopes for Mary. Mary could have been overwhelmed, hopeless, and scared, but Elizabeth stood behind her and cheered on, Run, Mary, run! Elizabeth closed ranks and declared, I've got you. I'm for you, Mary. Let's do this. I need women like Mary and Elizabeth, don't you? I need a tribe of elephants. I need to be an elephant. If we want women who live confidently in their own skin, women who live and move out of the ethic of abundance rather than scarcity, then we, like Elizabeth, must get from God what only God can give. It's through him that we're enough. You know, in my early years as a female pastor, I found very few female role models in my vocation. There just weren't many. Not only was my profession mostly all male, but my marriage didn't mirror the typical Christian marriage either. Steve and I both had public ministries. We both worked intensely in our fields of expertise. So rarely did I find a Christian woman doing my kind of work who also had a husband who was rocking it. And as I shared Earlier, the typical response from other Christian women was for me to kind of hold back, be less, calm down, slow down. But then I met this older, wiser woman named Jill Briscoe. Jill's vocation and her marital life were similar to mine. And one time I asked her, if you could say one thing to me, uh, as someone who's in ministry and husband who's in ministry, and both of you were running really hard, what, what would you say to me? And instead of telling me to hold back, Jill said, she said, look, I'm older and only have a short amount of time to play this game. The score is tied, and I'd say run as hard as you can to make the winning goal. You see, when we're on the floor of Walmart, metaphorically speaking, we need elephants to cheer us on and inspire us to go for it. How many times have you needed another person to see in you what you couldn't see or cheer you on when you felt like giving up? Or laugh and celebrate when you succeeded. We desperately need women like Jill and Elizabeth in our lives. We need to be elephants too. Here's the thing about cultivating relationships with other women. It's lovely, and it's not always easy. And I know you know that. And I also know that the Holy Spirit has most likely funked you during this podcast. You know that thing where she kind of thunks you on the shoulder and says, hey, I want to talk to you about that. You know, not, not to make you feel bad, not to, but to make you more. More and more of a woman who lives in an ethic of multiplication and abundance rather than scarcity. This, this is what I would encourage you to pay attention to and noodle on and discuss with Jesus over the week, that thunking that happened during this podcast. 
Jesus said that he came to give us abundant life. And I'm holding him to it when it comes to forming female friendships. So thanks for listening. Happy day from Austin, Texas. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.